Hello and welcome to Weird Together, the show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror films. I'm Brennan Storr, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I am Joseph Camo, host of The Cardinal Rule. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, how are you doing? I'm all right. A lot going on right now. You know, getting ready for some changes and getting ready to move and a couple different things. Getting ready for the semester to start up. Getting ready for the kids to go back to school. So, yeah, a lot going on, but I'm hanging in there. How are you, good sir? Same here. It's been an eventful week. Uh, as uh, I ordinarily don't talk about other people's stuff uh, on the show, but it's, it's now been published to Facebook. So uh, a friend of mine who works sometimes with me over on the Ghost Story Guys podcast, Anthony, he has uh, suffered an aneurysm. And so I found this out on Friday and I took a Harbor Air flight over to Vancouver. He'd been airlifted to Vancouver General. So I spent some time with him. And uh, again, ordinarily we don't post things like GoFundMes, but because Anthony's part of the family, if you take a look in the audio versions show notes for this show, I'm going to post the link there. And if there's anyone who cares to help out with Anthony's expenses, it would be deeply appreciated. But of course, there is no expectation. Times are lean. And uh, again, that, that is not, not expected, but contributions deeply, deeply appreciated. And uh, thankfully, Anthony's doing very well, all things considered. So yeah, it was, it was just a, it was a crazier weekend than I expected. Not, not the kind of excitement you want. On yeah. a weekend, Joseph. Right, for sure. Well, real quick, I want to say hey, we got a couple of folks in the chat. As always, Rin Lemieux is here hanging out with us. Even good hey, sirs. And Derek as well. Good evening, gentlemen. So appreciate y'all hanging out with us. Hello, Derek. Good to, good to have both of you here. And uh, hello to our audience who are not commenting and to those who are listening afterwards. Again, our numbers keep going up. We were charting in a, a surprising number of countries, I Joseph, saw that. In, including my native land. We were number 30 on the movie charts here in Canada, which was very cool. Better than a kick in the teeth. <laughs> but only just, only just. just slightly. Yeah. We are, however, not here to talk about sudden impact dentistry. <laughs> <laughs> I love that term. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as someone who's got a, a fairly sizable dentist appointment coming up next week, I'm not, uh, I'd rather not think about it too much. But um, no, we're not here to talk about sudden impact dentistry. We are here to talk about Patrick Lossier's brand new film, Play Dead. And of course, before we talk about any film, you never go in to a movie alone. You bring in your expectations, you bring in the day you had, you bring in everything that went with you. And so before we talk about Patrick Lussier's Play Dead, we got to take apart the baggage. All right, Joseph, what, if any, baggage did you have before going into Play Dead? Well, you know, you did such a great job of, you know, setting that up and explaining the importance and the, the you know, the, the absolute vi uh, vital nature of examining one's baggage. And, and in response, I'm going to say, I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> nothing at all. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I wasn't familiar with uh, the director. Um, I didn't really look into the film at all. I want to kind of go into it kind of, you know, with, with kind of a uh, clean slate. You know, certainly once I saw, and I didn't even look at the movie poster, but once I saw Jerry O'Connell, I was like, oh, okay, there's a familiar face in here. You know, I wanted to go into it clean, and I didn't have any familiarity with anyone involved in it that I knew of, at least at the time. So, yeah, nothing. Okay, all right. I went in, I, as, as a fan of Patrick Lussier, I'm a, a fan of his work, not only because he's, he's Canadian, which I'm, I'm always uh, highly supportive of, uh, any Canadian talent who's out there succeeding in the big bad world. 
I'm a fan of, of his work from way back. Uh, even his directorial debut, Prophecy 3, which uh, the Prophecy is, the original Prophecy is, is one of the great 90s horror films. And, and I think it's, it's now getting its due, but for a long time it was, it was just kind of ignored. And Prophecy 2 and 3, you know, they're, they're lesser films, if I'm honest, but they're still entertaining films. And I really, really think that 3 is, is now getting reappraised, which is very cool. And he, of course, directed My Bloody Valentine, which is a remake of another Canadian slasher film. And in rare fashion, uh, My Bloody Valentine is actually very, very good. Remakes, usually I don't give a shit, but that is exceptional. And of course, there's Drive Angry, which, Joseph, if you have not seen it, you have to see it. Okay. Nick, Nicolas Cage escapes from hell to take revenge on the cultists who are holding his daughter hostage. At least that, that is the premise. It's a little more complex than that. I won't ruin it for you. Well, I mean, but, with Nicolas Cage, it really doesn't matter what the premise is, right? It's, oh, it's going to be a film of a certain type, isn't it? It's amazing. I, <laughs> I saw it with my friends when it came out, and I want to mm -hmm. say 2011, maybe. Um, I think we saw it twice. I bought a physical copy as soon as I could. It's magnificent. Mm -hmm. So, And also, um, Patrick Lussier's latest film prior to this, uh, Trick, was a slasher film, and I really quite enjoyed that. It, it was critically panned when it came out, but I, I really quite liked it. And so I was, I was in the bank. And, and the other reason I picked the film, Joseph, uh, because for those of you who don't know, I, I choose the films. I kind of watch a bunch of horror and try and find something that we can talk about in a positive light, you know, because we don't like to bag on things here. And uh, so I'd gone through a couple things that were promising, but turned out to be not very good. Uh, and then, of course, this thing happened with my friend, and so I was... I hit the weekend, and usually by the weekend I've got something picked out. I was mid-weekend editing my other show, Ghost Story Guys, and had sweet piss all planned. So when I saw on Twitter that this film had come out, I thought, well, Jesus, I have to get on this, and hopefully this is good. And I quite thought it was. I, I very much enjoyed it. So yeah, it was, it was a combination of, of um, respect and enthusiasm for the, the filmmaker's previous work, along with uh, a big old Hail Mary that uh, this was going to be the film we wanted. Because again, we don't like to bag on stuff on this show. It, I think it's too easy to be cynical and shitty. Uh, and I mean, we're good at it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's enough of that out there. So that, that, is, that is my baggage. And I'm really looking forward to breaking this down with you because this is more of a, I think this is more of a straight ahead thriller than we've had on this show in quite a while. We've had a lot of films which are laden with subtext, which I didn't, pardon, which I didn't necessarily uh, find with this one. But of course, there's only one place we can have that conversation, my friend. Mm-hmm. That's a Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter, two men leave. Oh, been laying on the couch all day, a little stiff, but uh, I can <laughs> still do this thing. Sounds like we're getting ready to have sex, Joseph. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, not great. Not great. The only thing worse is how my teeth look on video, but let's not dwell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Joseph, what did you think of Play Dead? I think you liked it better than I did. Probably. That's usually the <laughs> This is a theme, isn't it, with us? Mm. Um, uh, so let, let me start by also mentioning, uh, you know, Jerry O'Connell, right, was, a, was certainly a familiar face. And, you know, Ren and Derek both have commented, you know, Ren saying, I enjoyed the movie. It was great to see Jerry O'Connell play a terrible person. 
Uh, Derek saying, I always take issue with Agano because people used to say we look alike, which was fine when we were chubby teens, <laughs> but he wanted to get in shape and married Rebecca Romaine. That's, yeah, I, I can see, yeah. Um, Fair. So, you know, you know, I thought Jerry O'Connell was chilling, but I did think his character was a little two-dimensional, and I, 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 I you know, I certainly they got into the a little organ bit. stealing coroner wasn't uh, wasn't yeah. rounded out enough for you there, Professor. I mean, right, right. I wanted, yeah, you know, I mean, they they try to kind of give him this sort of sociopathic kind of almost like a political ideology, sort of based on that, but it just felt a little too two dimensional. I don't know. I, I think I wanted to see something just a little bit more or different. I don't know. What What are your thoughts on him? I liked the character. I mean, mm-hmm. sure. I, I guess you could say that, uh, you know, he doesn't have an act three soliloquy or something. You nerd. But um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I like the character. I mean, I like Jerry O'Connell. Uh, Rin, if you want to see Jerry O'Connell play a bad person, Piranha 3D. He is, he plays a sort of a sleazy. There's um. He plays a particular type of person. He's meant to be based on the guy who did the Girls Gone Wild series. And he is such, is such a greasy dude in that movie. That movie itself is art. That is a wonderful movie. Piranha 3D. Uh, I think it's Alexander Aja or Aja. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but great filmmaker. And that movie's just great. But um, yeah, I, I liked the character just because he was this douchebaggy cipher you could just hate. Mm-hmm. The man had a loving family, Rin says. And then Derek says uh, it was almost like he was trying too hard to come across as a sociopath. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, they very much played into that whole, this, the idea that he's some kind of libertarian nut job who has these arch ideas, but where he fits in the social order. You know, if he told me he had a couple of Jordan Peterson books at home, I'd believe you. But, you know, the kind of guy you just yeah, want to, if you get stuck talking to him at a party, you want to die. Yeah. Well, you know, I actually have a little bit of a different angle on this. I got to tell you, I was, uh, I'm actually, Brett, I got to admit, I'm a little disappointed because you didn't tell me this was a biopic. Oh no. Uh, Because this is actually in my, uh, clearly I think this is the Ron DeSantis origin story, (laughs) right? You know, it's, it's the tale of a humble civil servant, how he began his crusade against the poor and marginalized populations. (laughs) By literally cutting them to pieces. Yeah. I mean, his his political kind of ideology certainly seems comparable, shall we say? I have to say, I, I do think the coroner was more successful and <laughs> certainly more uh, more eloquent than DeSantis. <laughs> right. And, and his dog seemed to like him at least, which I don't yes. think DeSantis can say. The, they had the same hair, though. So that's that's the one thing. Yeah, they did have the same hair. But DeSantis does not have Jerry O'Connell's face. It looks like if Tom Cruise was melded with Vincent Price and carved in granite. Mm. Those eyebrows, he could cut you with those <laughs> eyebrows. He could throw them like boomerangs. It, it, I, I, again, that's, that's a good looking man right there. I, I, he reminded me of the actor, I forget his name, but the, from Brooklyn 45, uh, mm. who we talked about, the one who had that very sort of period appropriate face. Yes. He has that, yep. that similar, like, again, you could break boards over his cheekbones. All choking aside, I mean, I will say, like, you know, I, maybe I thought that character needed a little something different. But I will say the film overall, I thought, was pretty sound. I mean, I, as much as I, I think it the, like the generally like the acting and writing and cin- the cinematography was great. Um, so overall, I did think it was it was it was a sound, you know, kind of 
well done film in general, but maybe for me, I think it it wasn't imaginative enough. Certainly, right. there was the twist that this coroner, you know, is has an organ farm right at, at the expense of you know the marginalized and poor. But beyond that, I just felt like it was quite predictable. It was predictable, absolutely. I mean, when the police officer turns up, you know damn well when the law turns up that far from the ending of a film, they're either in on it or they're going to die. That one of two things is going to happen. And, and of course, in this, he, he happened to be in on it. Um, it. It reminded me a little bit of Wes Craven's Red Eye. Have you ever seen okay. that? Actually, I have. Uh, uh, yes, I actually have. Yeah. So in that, it, you know, it's not reaching for any, it doesn't have maybe lofty aspirations, but it's a very well executed thriller. You know, it, it, it does what it comes to do very well. I, again, I watched it twice. And I enjoyed it. I actually am, I don't know if there's a physical release plan, but if there is, I might actually pick up a copy just because I, I don't know. I liked the world. I liked Bailey Madison as the lead. I wasn't really familiar with her aside from she appeared on an episode of the TV show Holliston when she was in her teens. But apart from that, I'm not really familiar with her work. Um, and I, I really enjoyed her. I, I would say the, the brother less so, TJ, but the actor who plays TJ, I felt didn't have a lot to work with. That is one of my criticisms of his character is he's, you know, as much as you might argue that uh, Mr. DeSantis was a cipher, uh, I really feel like TJ is, is just, uh, he's a human MacGuffin. He's a plot mechanism. There's, there's not much there. Like he's got that stutter at the beginning of the film, but there's never, never really any reason. It doesn't come up again. It's almost meant to sort of be shorthand for him being something, but I just felt like it wasn't as effective in, in sort of putting across what whatever it was they, they thought they were putting across. Yeah, that felt forced. You know, they tried to make him sort of, you know, he's reading, you know, 1984 and, you know, Orwell. Yeah. Okay, they're trying to pit this, you know, kind of pose that this is some sort of really kind of savant-like, brilliant, kind of odd character. And nothing about his character actually reinforces that or builds on that. It, it, like, um, I think as a MacGuffin, I think is the, the perfect way to describe those kind of quirks in his character because he didn't really do anything with that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess it was meant to set up the, the theme of, of the rich and the wealthy feeding off the poor, which obviously we, quite literally, they're doing in this film. And, well, Ronnie is quite literally doing down in Sunshine State. But something that, that I was thinking about and something that reminded me of is, of course, the, the film opens with TJ and Ross trying to rob a dispensary. With a pellet gun, right? <laughs> which is, seemed like a really bad idea. I got to tell you, man, I don't have a ton of experience with firearms or robbing places. Uh, but I'll tell you, if you're going to rob a place with something that looks like a gun, it better be a real goddamn gun. Right. Because folks are going to treat you like it's a real gun. And it reminded me of something that I, I once met this guy in a bar who was hired to work as day labor on a, an illegal grow in the woods somewhere. It was a last minute thing. That got, it, was, it was trimming season, so they, were, they needed a lot of guys. And... He was hired last minute by a friend of his who was a supervisor there. So they picked him up, brought him to the site, and he went in and, you know, he was taking plants down or whatever it was he was doing. And all of a sudden he heard a, he heard a gun, like a shotgun cock. And he turned around and there was this old man pointing a shotgun at his face. And he said, buddy, he said, he told me, you have never felt how close death can be that your whole world shrinks down to this little black barrel in front of your face. And he very hastily had to try and explain, I was hired at the last minute. He found, then luckily he found the guy who hired him and they, they sorted it out. But again, you know, this is an illegal grow, ripoffs happen. It reminded me, you, you don't want to go into those situations with a fake gun because that's, that's going to end real badly. 
indeed, as it did, sadly. On the subject of like the rich eating the poor and stuff like that, I mean, something I did appreciate about the film is that they nail, they, they sort of hammer that this hospital used to be much grander, but it was just gradually folded. And I, I'm not sure where they, where they shot the film. I wasn't able to determine that. Uh, you and I were saying off air, there hasn't been any promotion. So here's what I would tell you. If it was filmed where it was supposed to be set, it was set in Clexico, California, which I've actually been to, right? Because it's the, the, I actually used to go there when I was a teenager, uh, and early 20s because the border crossing goes into Mexicali and there's Calexico yes. on the California side. So they reference the Calexico butcher. And so if it was shot where it's supposed to be said, it was Calexico in, in Southern California. Yeah. And I was going to assume that, but then I saw, because as, as I was saying that there's been no, that I've seen no promotion done for the film. And I, and I don't know if that's because it was released after the strike started. I, I'm not hundred percent, but in an Instagram post I saw on Patrick Lussier's uh, Instagram account, he mentioned, or his partner mentioned that he had been down in the Los Angeles desert filming something. So uh, I don't know if he shot outside of LA and they just set it in Calexico or if she misspoke and they actually did shoot it in Calexico. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, either way, he's shooting in this, it's meant to be this grand hospital that, you know, has been reduced over time and over time. And I thought it was, that was kind of an interesting point because this is what happens, right? When infrastructure starts to fail, you get people setting up these little fiefdoms, you know, that they sort of take advantage of what's there and it can become a bit of a, a survival of the fittest situation. And, and it reminded me years ago, I ended up going for coffee with this joker who wanted to fight with me about taxes and why they were necessary. Cause I, obviously I think taxes are necessary. We have to pay for each other. That's how society works. Uh, don't, don't bother me in the comments or email me about this, but this guy was, he did, he disagreed. He thought this was incorrect. And his claim was that places should pay for their own things. So if you live here, the people who live there, they will pay for, and, I, and of course, as you and I both know, that's a moron's fantasy that doesn't work. And it's because of things like this, because some places can't afford. I mean, this is how, how New Jersey ended up with crime the way it did. That, as I understand it, that ding dong Chris Christie sort of said to the cities, well, you will pay for your own policing. And places like, um, what's the one where shit went really bad? Not Weehawken. Uh, it doesn't matter. Not Trenton. It's one of the cities where, where they lost, completely lost control of the city. They had to be, essentially take it back uh, block by block, like urban warfare. But um, yeah, it, it's just a stupid fantasy. But you get these guys who move into these places who think that they somehow have achieved something when in actual fact, they're just taking advantage of institutional failure. And I, I thought that was you know, a fairly, you know, fairly pointed crit critique and, and, and fairly well done. Yeah. And you know, you, you look at it like um, when you think about it, when you see smaller countries, developing countries, and you look at all the kind of, you know, the corruption that goes on in those places, a lot of times it is because there's just not the checks and balances because there isn't an apparatus there to maintain that, right? And listen, there's long conversations about, about you know, efficacy of, of institutions and, and, and how to set them up optimally and suboptimally. But when you, yeah, when you have fetums, again, a great word for that, you can, you have people who can bend the rules and do things that might be unethical. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So I, that's, that's a subtext in the film that, again, I felt was well executed and, and I appreciated. Derek is just responding something, and you mentioned this earlier, the whole really, you didn't think the sheriff was in on it was kind of ridiculous, right? I mean, that was so obvious, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the simple fact that, uh, again, if they'd stop to think about it for a second, the fact that Ross 
her ex-boyfriend and uh, TJ's accomplice, that he had been taken to the uh, the coroner despite the fact he was still alive. You think that might have clued them into the, you know, hey, you know, perhaps perhaps this is not uh, you know on the up and up. And again, I don't know how you can run uh, an organ smuggling ring out of a small town without law enforcement being complicit. But I mean, that leads to a whole other conversation about the complicity of law enforcement in organized crime, Joseph, and, and we don't have the time for that. Or institutionalized crime, too. Or institutionalized crime. Yep, that too. That too. Instead, let's talk about how great the scene was when Chloe, uh, Bailey Madison's character, is trying to free herself using a bone saw. I squirmed, man, because I thought that's going through someone's skin. That was, that was a great, great scene. Not as great as the final kill, which I'm going to wax on about at length in a little bit. But just, again, she trying to cut herself out with the, the scalpel at first, and I got all squirmy because I thought that's going in her wrist. And then that didn't work out, and then it was the saw. And uh, even watching it the second time this afternoon, I got all kind of tense about it. Yeah. And uh, I, I, so I, I love that. Yeah, I, I'm going to take a, a chance to kind of depart from you a little bit here in that. This, this reminds me of something about the film that I wish they had done different. Um. You know, so they set it up that Bailey Madison's character, you know, is is studying medicine, right? And then she, you know, she she, you know, when they're going to get the medication that she's going to use to kind of, you know, uh, kind of pretend, you know, that she's dead, uh, you know, and you know, and she has this line where she she explain, you know, she she tells the 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 pharmacist and nurse whoever is giving the medication exactly what it is and what it does, and I can, so they're setting her up as this person who has all this medical expertise. And I, I, I think the film could have been more imaginative or had a different angle or something more if they would have leaned into that a little bit more, like had Bailey's character maybe a little more of Breaking Bad Walter White in, in her, right? There were some points where, and I think you're going to talk about one of the kills, where she used some knowledge, scientific knowledge of how things and physics work. But I think it would have been really interesting if instead of it just being her trying to escape this sociopath, you know, Ron DeSantis origin story villain, if she was matching wits with him a little bit more, using some of her medical scientific knowledge more extensively. And I, I listen, I it's easy for me to sit here and say that I'm not giving specific examples for that could have been done. But I think it would have it would have added a little bit of a MacGyvery, even more so twist to it that could have been much more interesting. So that's something I would have liked to have seen with her character uh, more in this film. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that she she knew a lot about medicine when they needed her to know a lot about medicine, but then when they needed her to be a little less skilled or to be more rattled, then that was that was disregarded. Like you know, she when she finds the the fake gun. And of course, that was the fake gun Ross used to rob the place. And I mean, as the coroner points out, if you know anything about this field, you'll know that if there was a real firearm, it would not just be left in a box somewhere. And again, she still managed to use a gun to her advantage, but it was a little bit of a lapse there. And you think, okay, well, she probably would have, would have known that. And I mean, now again, I've handled real guns. I've not really handled pellet guns, but I feel like you would know the difference. But again, that I don't know enough about pellet guns to say. I mean, again, Certainly it was, you know, you hold a real gun in your hand. It's a, it's a thing, you know, it, it doesn't feel like anything else. But again, I, I don't know enough about pellet guns to know the difference, to know that whether or not someone who is completely unfamiliar with it, and, and I'm not a gun guy, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to be one of those guys who pretends I know a lot about fucking guns because I don't, 
but I know enough to think that, oh, you think you might notice a difference, but maybe not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not only, obviously when you hold one, the weight is different, but I would think it would look, the pellet gun you would recognize the look. I mean, she, I think she might have known it was a pellet gun. Oh, okay. She was hoping he didn't know. Yeah, I think she was trying to fool him. So I, what she didn't know is that he knew, apparently. He didn't know. Yeah. Okay. This is a whole, it's a, this is like a nesting doll of, of things people knew. <laughs> right. Right. In general though, I mean, she seemed like she was a smart character. I wish they would have leaned into that more. Yeah. I, I did enjoy at the end of the film, of course, as a character of Mannix, who is obviously part of the smuggling ring, who the sheriff turns against. And so when the time comes, Bailey and TJ sort of align with Mannix to take these other two guys down. And then she just in order to get the money from Mannix, she takes out the, the doctor's liver after having killed him. And there was a part of me that wanted, especially be, because of the spectacular kill, the way that the coroner is finally killed, there was this part of me that wanted to see a, a Bailey and Mannix movie where they're just going across, you know, going across North America, kicking ass and stealing organs. I love that, you know, Mannix, the guy refers to himself in the third person. I thought he was great. He didn't have a ton of lines, but you know, he delivered because you think at one point he says Mannix is a bad dude. And I thought, yeah, I believe that. But at the same time, like some of the sons of bitches I've known, this could still be fun. (laughs) Well, it was interesting because like they are, you know, you're kind of rooting for him at the end and they kind of align with him. And it's like this guy is helping with a black market organ operation. But okay, so maybe though he's not quite as bad because he thinks he's just taking organs from people who are already dead. And isn't on board with the whole, you know, organ farming of, you know, those poor sons of bitches, you know, that we saw or in the basement. Room. Yeah. So, so maybe he's only kind of bad because he, he, he's, you know, involved in something illicit, but he, he's not on board with the whole taking them from people who are alive kind of a thing. Maybe. Yeah. I, I actually, I do want to, t- to talk about that. I think yeah. if the film, again, I really like the film. But I think if it had leaned into more of the really diabolical stuff, like the basement full of, of, of winos who he's using for spare parts, or him taking out Ross's liver while Ross is still alive, I think if they had really leaned into that diabolical side of it, I really think they would have had a, a, like a, a film that people are talking about for a long time. As it is, again, totally solid film, really enjoyed it. But I think if they had leaned into that, like the final kill, the two final kills, the way they kill the sheriff and then the way they kill a coroner. That is legendary tear shit, especially the coroner kill. Because the, the coroner, of course, is she sprays was it liquid nitrogen in his face and then shatters half of his face. He looks like the Phantom of the Friggin' Opera. And it is the greatest. The satisfaction of watching her f- burn his face and then smash it, just a wonder. I, I, was, I cheered both times. And then he's coming after her and half his face is missing. And I'm like, this is... This is the best. And again, if there was a film where the half-faced coroner comes back, fuck it, I'm in. I'm in. I mean, given how he ends up, that's probably not going to happen. But uh, was when, her and, when her and Mannix kind of double-team take him down, I was just, you know, like the end of Rocky, you know, shadow boxing. Very, very happy with that. And again, it was just so gross and wonderfully executed. I thought, again, if it had been more like that, it really would have been something to see. Yeah, and I thought the kill of the sheriff was pretty interesting too. You know, obviously she used a little bit of a, a little bit of science there uh, with the canister. But I I agree with you that the sort of the the organ farm in the basement it was disturbing, but from a horror film perspective, kind of underwhelming. They they just 
you know, there was a little bit of the jump scare when the one guy opens his eye and you're like, oh, this person's alive and conscious and, you know, and asks her to put him out of his misery. But I felt like they could have done so much more with that. I mean, you know, if again, it felt kind of underwhelming within the context of horror films. It's like, oh, okay, that's a little creepy, but all right. That's it again, just a little underdone. Though I, I will say when the coroner realizes that there's no way back from this and he starts closing out accounts by uh, killing the homeless people who he's harvesting organs from one at a time. He's keeping them alive. The old man who is played by uh, Josh Harp, if, I, if I've got the name right, he had originally, because uh, he's clearly he's missing an eye, he's missing all these parts of himself. He is, there's, you know, there's no way he's getting out of there. And he begs Chloe to kill him. And of course she, she doesn't. But when the doctor finally is about to blow his head off, he, he just gets this quick moment, but he has this savage smile. And it was, I thought, a really, really effective moment from a, an actor who, again, you know, the character doesn't even have a name. They, they, they didn't even have to show this, but they took the time to show this character's reaction. And it's such a, a reaction of grim satisfaction that it, it kind of haunted me. And I, I really, really appreciated that. Yeah, I, I, I interpret that as relief, right? That he's finally... Oh, sure. Ab absolutely. Yeah. But there is also, again, a sense of satisfaction, like I won kind of a thing, you know, like, I don't, I don't know, maybe I'm just interpreting that myself, but I, I just really noticed the reaction and, and made it and thought it was uh, enough to enough to bring it up. That character, although it was such a small part, was probably one of the more interesting and memorable in the film. You know, certainly, again, the, the, the gruesomeness and the, the disturbing nature of his existence reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, the, the, the old Metallica music video for one, which one. draws film from, uh, what's, I forget the name of the, the movie, but it's Johnny Get Your Gun. That sort of life in existence where you're kind of helpless and cut off from the rest of the world, but having to continue existing and, and how hell that really is. Yeah. I honestly cannot listen to Metallica's one because I saw that video when I was a young kid and it, it just messed me up so bad. It I mean, if, me you if you sit with that and think about that for a while, right? How I'd rather not. Thank is. you. Right, yeah, it really is. It's one of those things where you're like, yeah, I'm not going to think about that because it would re it's really existential and disturbing. Yeah. So you and I were saying that this, is, this film, again, not as much to talk about here, and I've sort of kind of gone through most of the things I wanted to bring up. Uh, I do want to mention, uh, I guess there's one final grace note, but that, that can wait until the very, very end. But I, I do want to say that there's two things that I, I wasn't crazy about with a film. Um, I thought it was too long. I feel like 106 minutes for this kind of movie is, is too long by about 10 minutes, maybe. Yeah. I would agree. Um, I mean, I've seen people online say it should have been about 90. I don't, that's pretty tight. I don't know what, you, you know, I don't know what you'd have to lose to get it there, but I think eh, maybe 106 is pushing it. There was a lot of the dog chase stuff that was kind of unnecessary. Yeah. I mean, the dog was pretty cute though. He, that, it he's was. gotta be the most adorable killing machine ever in, right. in the history of cinema. Like I, I, I loved how they, it felt like they kind of had to edit around him because he just seemed more adorable than he did deadly. <laughs> right. You know, when he, when he, uh, it finally, um, it, of course at the end of the film, Bailey takes the doctor's liver, leaves him on the desk or table and then calls the dog in and he starts eating the doctor. And I just felt like, oh, this is the dog's movie all along. The dog is the actual star of this picture. And he just seemed like such a happy guy. And I just thought, well, this is, this is great. I mean, whatever happy happens. Ending. Is a happy end. And you know, it, 
I will say I enjoyed before I bitch about the other thing. I did like that this was an unambiguously, by and large, an unambiguously happy ending. There was no last minute twist. There was no cynical bullshit. I mean, obviously she participated in organ trafficking to a certain degree and Ross died a grisly, grisly death. And, you know, the institutions of this small town are corrupted beyond belief. But at the same time, they got away clean. And I feel like that's just not always a given in these movies. I genuinely thought TJ was going to die some horrible death in front of her. And because again, I just think films like this go for easy nihilism. And I was thinking back of that back, uh, pardon me, I was thinking about that going back over Patrick Lussier's films and he didn't write the film, but uh, still, you know, as a director, you shape it in, in the process. And I've always felt that his films are not that way. They're not uh, cheaply nihilistic, even trick, which was a pretty grim film. You know, it was a pretty grim slasher film. I felt it wasn't cheaply nihilistic. And so I, I, that's something about his, his work I appreciate. And, and I do think that was, uh, again, I, I think that had a lot to do with him. Yeah, that makes sense. So what was the other thing that uh, you wanted to kind of gripe about? Well, I, I thought it was interesting. You liked the cinematography. I didn't. I okay. thought it was very flatly lit. Um, so I thought there wasn't much use of shadow. Let me say, I wouldn't say I liked it. I just thought it was solid. You know, we, we watch a lot of films that are low budget. And it, sure. it looked like a professional film. I'm not, you know, we, yeah. there were much better films we've, we've in terms of that, but it, so it was, it was a solid C plus across the board on that kind of stuff. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. It was competent. Um, but again, I, I just thought it, the lighting was a little flat, but of yeah. course you don't know what restrictions are working with time wise. Again, I, I couldn't find any information about the film, so I don't know how many days they had. I'm assuming probably three weeks, something like that. But who knows? I mean, it, with nowadays, it could be as little as 10 fucking days. So yeah, hard to say. I mean, this seemed like a really good movie for just 10 days, so I'm doubting that. But uh, regardless, yeah. So that was my only gripe. You know, yeah. I thought there was some really, really great m bits, you know, like the, the lights on the door, the, LED, the red and green LED lights. I really yeah. quite like those. Mm -hmm. um, I thought those were very strong. And the lighting in the, the organ harvesting basement, even though it seemed weird to have sort of a discotheque lighting down there. I just appreciated that, you know, it, it was colorful and it was kind of different. Uh, but I just thought overall, it just seemed a little, to me, it seemed a little flat. Do you think it was an attempt to create sort of a very morgue kind of drab kind of feeling in the film? I mean, um, you know, you think of a morgue and, you know, being sort of this sort of place like that. I wonder if that was, was, a, was a style decision or if it was just a limitation to the set. It could very well be. Like I, that could very well be, but I mean, there's a film and I was just looking it up. It's uh, night watch directed by Ole Bornadal and it came out in 94 and then he remade it in America in 97 with Ewan McGregor, I think. And as I recall, that film was set in a morgue, but it still looked really, it managed the rich shadows. So it, it's very possible that that was intentional, but I, I just felt like it, it, um, if, if it was, I felt like it didn't accomplish what it set out to do. And it ended up being halfway between what I would, what I would have wanted to see and what it was trying to do. But again, that, you know, my expectations are not relevant to how good a film is or is not. That's, that's simply my expectation. No, that makes sense. Yeah. No, I, I think this was like a, again, it was kind of a solid textbook film that didn't, to me, it, it just, maybe it was just so C plus across the board. Nothing stood out as being particularly great, but nothing was particularly bad either if that makes sense yeah i liked it i liked it more than that again i, I was really in, invested in the tension of it i was invested in the in the character you know the character the survival of the characters again you know the plot was not exactly a surprise 
and that part of that is just coming from I think for me watching so many movies, but also you know as, as we were saying it, it, this was a little bit by the number as far as that goes. But as as a genre exercise, I thought it was very well executed, and again something I I would probably watch again. I don't know if I would rent it again because really by that point I could have bought the fucking thing. But um, certainly if it popped up on streaming, I I would watch it. And I, and if I was someone knew someone who was looking for a thriller, I would recommend it. Here in the states, I don't know if it, we got it for free on Tubi, so. Oh, okay. No, it's it's not on Tubi here. It's or so far as I know, it's not on Tubi. I I, I paid to rent it on uh, Cineplex. If it's free on Tubi, I'm gonna be annoyed. It is. It was for me. Well, if it, yeah. Motherfucker. <laughs> but yeah. So, uh, the only other thing I, I only had one more thing I wanted to mention again. It's just a tiny little thing on the way out. So I, I want to see. Did you have anything else you no, wanted I to th- say? No, I think we've hit on everything I really wanted to talk about. Okay. So the only other thing I wanted to to mention about the film is just a little bit, just a tiny little moment at the beginning that I I quite enjoyed. And I assume it was intentional. Uh, It was either that or the greatest possible timing imaginable. But when Bailey is about to shoot herself up with, I believe the propofol, she has just about pressed the needle to her arm and you hear a train horn. And I loved that. It was just a tiny little thing. And it was, it was... I love the sound of trains. I grew up literally across the street from a, from a rail yard. So to me, I have, and my town is, my town, my hometown exists because of the railroad. And, uh, so I, I have this, this love of, of trains and that sound. And for me, that, that sound always speaks of journeys of, you know, beginning and ending and, and, and things far away. And so to, to, to just put that in there as she's about to, to do this thing, which is going to completely change you know, her life and, and her perception of her community. Uh, again, if it was, if it was an accident, it was wonderful. It was, you know, a wonderful accident. And if it was intentional, which I suspect it was, it was a, a, just a brilliant little choice that really, really made me smile. So just a little non sequitur, I grew up, uh, spent part of my childhood in, a, in Northern California and where we lived was very close to, um, uh, tracks, right? Railroad tracks. And I would hear trains, you know, in the horns and such, you know, pretty frequently as a child. I was like from age three to age 13, I lived there. And I have a very different feeling about trains. They are eerie to me. Like a train horn in the distance has sort of an eeriness to it. And I'm waiting for someone to do a good horror film that somehow gets a haunted train right in a way that actually works for me. I have, I haven't really seen anything yet, but to me trains, there's something the haunting about that echoing and that sort of that train, you know, a horn in the distance. So, Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. I've never, I don't talk about that much, but obviously it was relevant uh, as, as a contrast to kind of your, you, what it, what the, what they mean to you. Right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy you shared that. I mean, for me, you know, like I said, I grew up across the street from a train yard and Revelstoke, these huge freight trains, like mile long plus freight trains, freight trains will pass through. Maybe not so much now, but when I was a kid, quite a bit. And I remember we would stay at my grandparents' place and my grandparents' house was just across the river from the train, uh, from the, the, sorry, we were, we were between, uh, we were between the outbound track and the inbound track when one was across the river and one was up the hill from us. So when you get these big mile long trains, you could feel like you would feel the ground move as you're laying in bed. And we used to stay at our grandparents' house every Saturday night. So every Saturday night, you'd be laying in your bed at your grandma's house and you f- just feel the ground 
move just a little bit. And it, it used to scare me, you know, at first, and then I got used to it, and then I kind of came to find it soothing. And now, yeah, I just find, I find trains soothing. Although if, if you want to hear, uh, I, I have a sad fact for you about, about haunted trains. Well, <laughs> of course, now that you've, you know, said it so convincingly. Yeah. So let's end this on a real depressing down note. Right. So we have periodically on Ghost Story Guys, of course, it's a ghost, uh, it's paranormal storytelling show. So we tell ostensibly true life stories of the strange and unusual. And I will go hunting for stories prior to an episode coming out. And one of the things we like to do is theme episodes after a particular topic. So we've done Taxi to the Other Side, which was stories centered around taxi cabs. We've done um, All Aboard the Dream Train, which is people's weird dreams or true, you know, dreams that have come true, things like this. And I have always wanted to do a, a specifically a train episode. And I don't think we ever have. And part of that is because I get dispirited when I find stories in the various places we search online where people clearly think that the Underground Railroad was an actual subway. And they will have these stories, quote unquote, about hearing, you know, you can still hear the train whistle of the underground railroad tunnel that went under my house. And Joseph, it makes me sad inside in a way that even the death of the people I love cannot. You know, uh, Derek has an interesting thought comment here. My great grandmother used to say in Spanish, listen to the train, how sad it sounds. I think mournful is a yeah. really great word for what a train, uh, uh, you know, a horn sounds like. That's really beautiful, Derek. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. So, but trains, yes. man, they bring yeah. it out in us. Yeah, they really do. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's something to be said for that. Maybe, maybe, maybe you might one of these days put together an episode where you find stories that don't illustrate the failings of the American <laughs> education system. <laughs> I don't want to say it, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can say it because I'm American, right? Yeah, so exactly. You yeah, that's your word. You can say that. Right, right. All right. Well, that, that has been our conversation about Patrick Lussier's latest film, Play Dead. That's a, it's a strong recommend for me, Joseph. It, it is a, a mid-level Solid. recommend from you? Yeah. Yeah, sure. If you like horror films, you like these kinds of thrillers, it's, it's, it's solid. All right. Well, folks, Rin, Derek, and everyone else who's watching, everyone who's downloading the shows, thank you so much for joining us, guys. We can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Again, we are, I guess now in our, what, seventh month of doing this Something as a regular like thing? It, it's been I, a while. Yeah. And it's, you know, our audience, again, keeps going up and it's just fun to do. So thank you for being on this journey with us. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. And if you're not watching this on YouTube, if you're listening afterwards, please do uh, make sure to follow our RSS feed and subscribe to us on YouTube. Joseph, my friend, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Jokomo13, uh, so long as Twitter continues to exist. We don't know how long that will be. Thanks. <sighs> right, right. Uh, I refuse to call it by the letter that he wants to call it. Um, yeah, at least we can't you, blame this one on the American education system. No, no, right. There was, is it South African? Is that where he's from? Yeah. Right, okay. Uh, and also, you can find me on YouTube at The Cardinal Rule. If you are into NFL football, I do some stuff over there. Lovely. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, and Threads as Largely the Truth. My other show is The, the Ghost Story Guys. I do this for a living, I swear. The Ghost Story Guys with Paul Bestel of Mysteries and Monsters. And you can find the Ghost Story Guys everywhere. Find podcasts live and also on YouTube. All the music in this show is composed and performed by Elliot Wilder, performing as The Revenants. You can find more from them at therevenants1.bandcamp.com 
or by searching for The Revenants on all major streaming platforms where they are streaming courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings. That is the Ghost Story Guys house label. Our theme song is Rest in Peace from the album Music from Big Beige, also from The Revenants. And I guess that's going to do it. So until next time, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? See you next time, folks. Let me rest.